Hey folks, this is Michael, and welcome to Tatter. Before we get started, I just want to say two things. First, unless anyone on Tatter says that they are speaking on behalf of any particular organization or group, you should assume that each person speaks for themselves and themselves alone. I always want to point that out to avoid misunderstanding. The second thing that I want to say is thank you. Thanks to each of you who offers financial support for Tatter through Patreon, but more generally, whether you do that or not, thanks for listening to this podcast. It means a lot to me. With all that said, let's get started. Here's Tatter. The people, my people are so smart. And you know what else they say about my people? The polls. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. That was candidate Donald Trump, now President Donald Trump. Unlike the loyal supporters he appears to have had in mind during that quote, many people, myself included, have doubted his fitness for office from the moment he was elected. And now, more than two years into his administration, and with the release of the Mueller report, many still question his fitness to serve, and many are calling for impeachment. In the House, where that process would begin, Democrats have a majority, but the Democratic leadership has not been moving in that direction. House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer went so far as to call impeachment, quote, not worthwhile at this point, end quote. Personally, I've been skeptical, too, that it's worthwhile, especially with Republicans in control of the Senate. But am I right to be skeptical? What do we know and what do we not know about the likely political consequences of impeaching? And why do the norms, values, and institutions that the president tramples on matter? I recently discussed these issues with Julia Azari, political scientist at Marquette University and a regular contributor to 538, as well as with Seth Maskett, a political scientist at the University of Denver and a contributor to Vox.com's Mischiefs of Faction. I now share that conversation in this episode, which is titled Judgment Call. So, Julia, you're in Milwaukee now. Uh, and Seth, you're in Denver? Correct. And is it Denver University or the University of Denver? University of Denver. Well, it's, it's the University of Denver, and we abbreviate it DU. So go for it. That's why it's so confusing. Yes, yes. That, you, is, you that be, is confusing. The faculty senate should work on that, or I guess it would be the trustees, or, or the regents, or, what, or whatever the overseers are. <laughs> All of that sounds very painful. <laughs> yes, yes. Any, if it's any committee I'm not on, I'm just fine with it. <laughs> Well, uh, thanks to each of you for joining me for Tatter, the impeachment episode. And uh, I am going to try to edit this when we finish and get it out as quickly as possible, because you never know what's going to happen in a 24-hour news cycle these (laughs) days. But um, I want to get us oriented a little bit uh, by uh, jumping to an article by Yoni Applebaum that was in the March or uh, it appeared in March at uh, the Atlantic.com and Yoni's at one point uh, says uh, in here I quote uh, the oath of office is a president's promise to subordinate his private desires to the public interest to serve the nation as a whole rather than rather than any faction within it Trump displays no evidence that he understands these obligations To the contrary, he has routinely privileged his self-interest above the responsibilities of the presidency. He only goes on. He's failed to disclose or divest himself from his extensive financial interests, instead using the platform of the presidency to promote them. Uh, Jumping ahead, more troubling still, Trump has demanded that public officials put their loyalty to him ahead of their duty to the public. On his first full day in office, he ordered his press secretary to lie about the size of, of his inaugural crowd. He never forgave his first attorney general for failing to shut down investigations into possible collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia and ultimately forced his resignation. Quote, I need loyalty. I expect loyalty, end quote. Uh, this is Trump telling this to his first FBI director and then fired uh, him when he refused to pledge it. So I just wanted to get 
us and people listening oriented uh, with that extended quote to give a sense of um, the at least part of the case, um, and in many people's view, the case has been bolstered by the Mueller report, the case for impeachment. In fact, Yoni's or Applebaum's uh, headline was impeach Trump, uh, very concise. So even though people have made that case, some people, myself included, have argued that it would not be smart politics for the Democrats to impeach, since with uh, Republicans in control of the Senate, it's highly unlikely that the, I believe, the two-thirds majority required for conviction would ever be reached. And so impeachment is not going to result in removal of Trump from the office, in my view. But I know, Seth, I'm going to go to you first. I've read a piece of yours, The Pacific Standard, that seems to suggest that I might be overconfident in taking that position. What's your reaction to, to, to that argument that it wouldn't be smart politics because ultimately it's going to fail? Um, I think the evidence that we have for the political consequences of impeachment are actually really sparse. Um, you know, people will point to, uh, you know, the Republican attempt to uh, impeach and remove Bill Clinton and 98 and 99 and say, well, you know, that was a failure. It may have cost them seats in the House. Um, on the other hand, uh, they took the White House uh, the following year. Um, it, it, it's a little bit of a, of a it, it's honestly not a great data point. They were trying to impeach a, a much more popular president uh, than uh, Donald Trump is today. If we look at uh, attempts to impeach Richard Nixon in 1974, um, Democrats went on to have, uh, you know, even though that, that did result in uh, Nixon leaving office, um, the Democrats went on to have a, a very good uh, 1974 and 1976. Um, I, I just, and there's just not that many cases. And we can look to gubernatorial recall attempts, but there's not that many of those either. Um, and if we're just sort of relying on polls, um, yeah, polls suggest that actually trying to impeach and remove uh, Donald Trump is, is does not have a ton of support right now. I've seen, you know, 40, 45 percent support for this sort of thing. Um, but there's a suggestion that, well, that's what it would look like uh, going forward. And I think once you actually start the impeachment process, there's a fair amount of uh, uncertainty that comes after that, depending on how the information is gathered, what it, what the investigation turns up, um, how uh, the Trump White House responds to that information. Um, that, you know, the attempts to impeach him could become more popular, could become less popular, but I don't think it's really a slam dunk either way. So boringly, I think I generally agree with Seth about the 1998 case. Um, I think the bigger lesson there is not only that we don't really know a lot about the impact of impeachment cases, but that the, the two things we do know send us in slightly different, different directions. So first, I think what we know is that the electorate seems to be pretty averse to not just impeachment, but these same kinds of disruptions like gubernatorial recalls. One of the things that I had observed when I was, um, I was writing a piece for 538 back in August about some, now I don't even remember, some set of revelations with Trump and this kind of the impact on his legitimacy. And one of the things that I observed was that with Clinton, People thought that he had lied, um, but they still didn't think he should be removed from office. And I predicted that it would probably be the same with Trump. And that, you know, that seems like kind of a strange comparison, given the difference in the substance of the, of the allegations. But at the same time, it actually does seem to be true that people think that Trump did something dishonest or wrong, but they don't like the idea of impeachment. And so I think some of that is maybe that there's a kind of latent preference for stability in the electorate. Um, at the same time, I think the other thing to consider is that nothing sticks very long. So when we think about a Nixon example, Democrats go on to do really well in 1974 in those midterms. Then 1976 is a very close presidential election um, with very little, very little change in the partisan composition of Congress, if I remember right. And then 1980 is a great year for um, for Republicans. And on the one hand, like that's not that surprising. You have a whole new cast of characters, a whole new set of political conditions. 
But on the other hand, you might think, well, this is really, you know, at the time, Republicans thought this is really a very serious brand crisis, and it just didn't last very long. And that's, I think, a similar lesson from from Clinton in 1998. Bill Clinton himself was really popular, and we see that in the in the late 90s. Those economic conditions were already starting to break down a little bit by the time the 2000 election got got started. Clinton's personal popularity wasn't very transferable to Gore. I do think that some of the dynamics of that election were shaped by the fact that Bush was able to portray himself as an alternative, as a sort of morally clear an upright person in comparison with with Clinton, um, and you know, regardless of what one thinks of the the truth of that claim, but you know, I don't think that it really, you know, it didn't really. the The impeachment was maybe bad for Republicans in the ninety eight midterms. It didn't have a really long impact. So I think those are like when we're thinking about political considerations, it's that the electorate is kind of fickle, and also these kinds of political, you know, it's a short term probably a short-term political effect, not a long-term one. So I wonder if each of you agrees with my premise, or at least one of my premises, which was that uh, conviction is unlikely in the Senate. Sure. I mean, I think that's a default position, right? Getting two-thirds to do anything is going to be unlikely. It's unlikely. And I, I, um, you know, I I tend to agree with, uh, you know, John Bernstein has made the point that um, conviction of uh, and, and removal of um, Richard Nixon looked pretty unlikely until suddenly it looked likely that, you know, with the with the revelation of information and, and with the dramatic turn in a president's popularity, things that look politically impossible one day can actually turn pretty quickly when the dam breaks. I don't yeah. know if that's about to happen with Trump. Um, I, and my my default would tend to be that uh, he's unlikely to be removed from office, but I, I don't think it's it has a zero possibility. Well, and so if that happens, part of my concern and cards on the table, I lean left and I'm registered as a Democrat. And so part of my concern as a Democrat is that if that happens, what we end up with is President Pence, uh, who is uh, also going to advance an agenda that is hostile to progressive interests, but he's going to be more disciplined. So... If I can jump on that, um, those who are making the argument for impeachment, I, I think, in particularly in line with um, with Yoni Applebaum's piece, I think are making the argument that you know they're focusing on specific impeachable acts, okay, they're, and and or just general uh, Trump doesn't belong in the White House because he violates various norms that we rely on to keep democracy running, or that he's corrupt or anything else. Um, I don't think, I, I think those arguments should be kept separate from, I simply don't like the president's policies, um, or I, I don't like his ideological positioning. Um, and I think that if, if those who are, I don't know, I would tend to think if, if, if you support removing him because of various uh, either impeachable acts or his, his inappropriateness to hold this office, um, I don't really think that should be tempered by, I don't like the policies of the next person who would replace would replace him. That um, either either he's committed impeachable acts or he hasn't. But so, um, I don't know. Go ahead, Julia. <laughs> yeah. So Seth has given this sort of morally clear answer. I'm going to give the I think the politically cynical answer, <laughs> which is that I don't think I don't think any sort of impeachment action goes forward without a coalition of people who see. Um, who see political gain. And so it may be that a critical number of Democrats in the house see this as you do, Michael, and see that a president Pence would be worse for them from a policy perspective. It would be worse for them. You know, it would hurt their constituents in some way. And so I think, I mean, I think that's plausible. I actually don't think it's super likely. And I think there's two, there's a political calculus reason and there's a sort of, thinking about presidential strength reason. Um, and then I'll, if I remember, I will give a third kind of speculating wildly reason. Okay. So um, so the, the political calculus reason is that I think, you know, President 
Pence, if you're thinking you're fairly like a liberal Democrat or even, you know, you're like a middle of the road congressional Democrat, you represent a suburban constituency outside of some big city, whatever, you know, Pence is probably, Pence is probably fundraising gold for you, right? You can point to these social issues that seem to have been a kind of tipping point for, um, for bringing in suburban voters, particularly suburban women, you can use, you know, anti-LGBT statements and actions of um, Pence's government, both Pence's vice president, Pence's governor of Indiana. You know, these are issues that unite the Democratic coalition. These are issues that animate, get people to the polls, and also the Democrats are in, particularly, I think, LGBT rights, but also on abortion rights. Democrats are in broad agreement about where they stand. So this is like, if you're really thinking politically, you know, Trump is not bad in this regard, but Pence is probably just as good, could be even better. Um, as a presidential scholar, I have a hard time imagining actually that Pence would be this amazingly effective president. That's not to say, you know, obviously he's got some political skill um, and he's a more standard issue Republican, but I don't know that, you know, in that scenario, he's going to have a huge amount of a political capital. There's going to be, in this scenario, there will have at least been a little bit of an impeachment circus, and there'll probably have been quite a bit of one. Yep. And so my, my speculative scenario is that there is no removing Trump from office without removing, without Pence also going down because of the nature of what's happened, um, what may or may not have happened in the campaign, I guess. Um, that, you know, that might not be true, but assuming Pence survives that, he will be seen as someone who signed on all of this, right? And I think it'll be very difficult for him to separate himself, particularly because he wasn't someone with a particularly, like for a big national reputation prior to signing onto the Trump ticket. This really is his foray into major national politics. Um, obviously, the long political resume, but he wasn't a familiar face to most Americans before 2016. So I think it'd be very hard for Pence to to emerge from this with a lot of, you know, with a lot of esteem among Washington colleagues um, with a clear and robust agenda, you know, I think he would just be um, probably maintaining and um, sort of a Ford Ford esque kind of way. So I don't think like, I don't, I don't see those scenarios playing out. I could imagine. I mean, not that any of these things are going to happen, but um if somehow Trump were actually removed from office and Pence becomes president, I could imagine uh, Trump in in a, a very non-subtle way uh, asking for a, a full pardon uh, right. from, from the new president, Pence, mm-hmm. which puts Pence in the position of either looking completely corrupt by pardoning Trump in the same way that, that it really hurt Ford, um, or completely uh, dissing Trump by saying, no, I'm not going to do that, uh, in which case uh, his own party is gunning for him. I mean, that would yeah, put Pence really in an absolutely terrible position. And I can't imagine Trump being very tactful in this, in his request for this. That's a really good point. I also do think, you know, Seth's scenario is really important. And one thing to think about is we're thinking about what would be the political fallout of, um, of Trump's impeachment and removal from office. If that were to happen is dude would still have Twitter. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's the, I think really the is is um, there no impeachment procedure from Twitter? Um, I I I am going to go with no based on what I've seen on Twitter. Right, that's an even higher threshold. Somehow. Right, exactly. It's just, it's a three quarter. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead, Michael. So you have to keep us on track. I, well, there are many tracks I want to go down, so that's cool. But I, I so. I know that Barr has been in the news lately, uh, so the new attorney general. Uh, what's the value in a kind of, I think I've seen this referred to as a kind of impeachment light, which is the Democrats don't actually uh, impeach Trump, but they seek to remove Barr from office. Is is there much of a gain for Democrats if they go that route? I mean, for just speaking politically, um, you know, the... the the Democratic leadership might be just thinking that uh, they, their base, uh, a lot of their a lot of their members of Congress, like want a scalp here. Um, you know, they want to go after Trump, but some of the leaders are concerned that this would have negative electoral consequences, and that but maybe they could, you know, they could try to 
uh, you know, go after Barr and that maybe that will satiate um, uh, some of the folks on the left. Um, and they could at least point to to the scalp that they just claimed. I, I, I don't know how much truth there is to that or people would feel, you know, very gratified by that. But, it, you know, it, it, it would be something. It would be some degree of accountability uh, that uh, that the Congress would impose, I suppose. Yeah, I think you have to think about that as a process of accountability that's almost completely separate from public politics. I think the average person has totally forgotten um, who Barr is altogether. Um, <laughs> I, but I also think that there, this was kind of what I argued on the 538 chat last week when we took up this question, is that the Constitution needs to mean something. And it's not partisan to say that the officers of the cabinet are fundamentally officers of the Constitution and of the American people, and that there are lines that can be crossed around their, you know, their comportment and their decision making. They don't work for the president. And yep. that's, that's a totally reasonable line to draw. And it's a totally reasonable expenditure of political capital. I don't think it's a way to amass political capital. And yes, I know other political scientists don't like the term political capital, but that is too bad. Well, as an aside, I'm curious as a non-political scientist, why don't they why don't they like the term? I mean, I think it's not very precise, um, which is you know which is true. But I think it's when you're talking about you're kind of talking about a general battery of of things, right? Public public support, you know, a coalition, public anger at your opponents, et cetera, is a useful kind of shorthand. That's my that's my um, perspective on that. I mean, we're not doing physics here. I mean, a little imprecision is to be expected, but oh, yeah, that is in my. Fired. What's that? I said shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, well, given where I sit as a social psychologist, I'm not. I'm not throwing stones. I mean, I'm, we're in this together in the social sciences, but, but in any case, um, before. I mean, I, I just, I just want to say, I mean, I totally get that there are lines that have to be drawn between acceptable and unacceptable uh, conduct. And at some level, it makes sense to set aside the political electoral calculations. And if he's just wrong and uh, he needs to be removed, he needs to be removed. I get that. But at a time when Ruth Bader Ginsburg and Stephen Breyer are in their 80s, I think that you have to think about the political calculations and taking back the White House, I think, for progressives in 2020 is immensely important. And so that, that's, that's why I'm so interested in the potential uh, impact on the Democrats' prospects of either making headway in uh, uh, the Senate, maybe taking control is unlikely, or at least taking back uh, the White House, um, but it, it, perhaps do you think I'm do you think I'm worried too much about the political calculations here? I just think it's hard to know what the political calculations are. Yeah. Um, I think if there is an impeachment and uh, and Democrats fail to remove Donald Trump uh, from the presidency. It's not totally clear to me what the the electoral impact of that is in 2020. Um, mm -hmm. It could it could tear down his popularity somewhat. Um, there could be some sort of backlash against Democrats. It could. It's possible the net impact is zero. Um, and I think what we also should be thinking about, though, is that, you know, it, in some ways, the onus is on Democrats to decide whether to try to enforce uh, this part of the Constitution, um, which is which is plainly there. It's just that, you know, when the president does a certain number of things that uh, you have to consider his removal, that's on Democrats right now. And there are consequences to not doing that as well. That That is a choice yep. um, to just say, well, look, all the things that Donald Trump has done, we've decided it's not worth the political consequences um, to try to him impeach him. And there is a, a very real possibility that Donald Trump, uh, that Democrats do not uh, attempt impeachment, and Donald Trump is reelected. And then what is, okay, so well, what are the consequences from that going forward on Donald Trump in a second term or on future presidents? Um, are we, do, does it, is the lesson coming from that, that 
impeachment just basically does not exist as a check on presidents anymore. Um, right. That, I think yeah. that's, I'm going to jump in here. I think that that's right. Um, and that I would never, you know, I would never want to downplay the importance of winning a presidential election. And I'm, it's not, it's not clear to me that this is on the route to changing the consequences, but I think that, right, like the consequences of the Supreme Court. So if the Democrats decide to impeach Trump, that's not going to change the policy consequences that in the balance with something like Supreme Court justices. What it does do, though, is it it is a decision not to continue to raise those stakes, right? Yeah. Because as as Seth said, if there's no if there's no you know if no, nothing is impeachable, if impeachment is just doesn't exist, if impeachment can be you know can be forgotten because of the the political implications, then that again hugely raises the stakes of presidential elections. And ideally, we might want to move into a world in which the other party winning that isn't the party that you favor isn't a massive disaster. And that's how I think a lot of people perceive it now. So that I think is sort of, you know, it is a long game question. And I see what you're saying about the short term. I guess I just don't see the I don't see the potential electoral consequences as demonstrable enough or great enough to make that sacrifice. So I think if the Democrats really think Trump did something impeachable, they need to move forward with that regardless of, you know, regardless of political speculation. I think that really is, that really is the bottom line. And I'm not commenting on whether or not that's the case. Um, but I think that really, as I said, that really is the bottom line. Realistically, they probably won't do it unless they see some clear line of political advantage. Um, so I think those things just exist in tension. So one last question about one last crass question, if you could stomach it, about the I love uh, crass questions. <laughs> about the electoral consequences of impeaching or not, uh, and then I want to shift gears. Uh, and this question's inspired by a recent episode of the Bulwark uh, podcast uh, that I was listening to, uh, hosted by Charlie Sykes. Uh, used to be the Daily Standard, but uh, the Weekly Standard with the Daily Standard uh, are no more. But uh, Charlie Sykes was hosting former uh, congressman and also former Republican David Jolly, and David Jolly suggested that. If the Democrats really want to focus on what I would characterize as bread and butter issues like health care, which it seems at times that's what some of them would rather focus on than impeachment, uh, then Jolly said it's actually in the Democrats' best interest to move ahead with an in impeachment uh, inquiry to settle this one way or the other. And the idea is uh, that's what's necessary to actually, and he seemed to imply that's what will be, that's what will be sufficient one way or the other, to actually put this issue to rest. Does that seem probable to you that uh, impeachment proceedings would actually position Democrats, say, uh, within the next 12 months to have this issue, set of issues behind them? I mean, I guess if uh, it sort of depends on the, on the speed of this whole thing. Um, I don't know how long an impeachment inquiry followed by, you know, the actual series of impeachment votes followed by, um, a Senate trial. Um, I suppose that could be done on a, on a fairly expedited basis, but I imagine it would, it would take up a fair chunk of the amount of time between now and election day, 2020. I, I, I have a hard time imagining that a lot of the next election cycle won't turn on this issue. I, I yeah. mean, I suppose it's always possible for, um, you know, to try and wrap it up relatively quickly and Democrats to sort of pivot a little bit. Also, it's not like um, Congress can be focusing on one thing and also candidates can be doing something else while they're on the campaign hustings. Um, they can be, you know, talking about bread and butter issues. The presidential candidates can be doing the same thing. Not everyone has to be talking about impeachment all the time, even though they'll, they'll certainly get a lot of questions on it. So I have a somewhat different take on this which is that it, to me that sounds like they um like a, a take that wants to skip to the end um which is you know what, what's going to happen in this impeachment process is we're going to figure out 
what really happened and was this impeachable and you know whatever and that that's going to put put the whole thing to bed and that's the exact opposite of what i think of where we are um where we are is that we don't actually know what impeachment means each impeachment crisis in in american history has been a, you know a little sideways in one way or another nixon's is the most clear and he resigned before the process could play out um, the other two, and I've written about this on, um, on the mischiefs of faction on box.com where Seth and I both blog, um, that, you know, Andrew Johnson back in the 1860s, you learn like this was just, this was political. It was, you know, it was kind of nonsense. And then you learn, at least I learned about Andrew Johnson and him being a kind of a racist monster who really was terrible for the country at a critical moment. Um, and with Bill Clinton, I think it's more complicated and I'm more likely to offend people who are living. Um, but, you know, I think there are reasons to have a serious conversation about about the substance of Bill Clinton's decision to have an affair with an, an intern um, that got lost in this sort of political circus. So we've never talked about, as a country, we've never really talked about what impeachment means. And what I think there's an opportunity for Democrats to do here is to is to for someone to take the lead on that and say, here's what this thing means, and here's how it can be used, because it's very vague and unclear right now. And that's that's the stage we're at where we're actually defining what the process is. And so I think it's unlikely it's unlikely in that context that that would then produce an outcome that would be definitive. I think that's like that's really far down the line, but it would be a step in the right direction for someone just to say, here's how we're going to move forward with interpreting this, this piece of the constitution. Um, we're going to take a stab at establishing uh, a meaning that people can, can share. And I don't, I don't totally know what would happen, um, what would happen from there, but I see that as the contribution, not a decisive verdict on the Trump presidency, which I think will not happen in our lifetimes, regardless of what the Democrats do or don't do. I think related to this, um, if I'm remembering correctly, Ezra Klein did a piece and podcast, I think in the summer of 2017, on impeachment uh, and more on a theoretical level. Yeah. Um, just uh, the idea that most people are really reticent to try to impeach a president, um, even an unpopular one. And just noticing that, you know, pe the same people who talk about running government like a business tend to be really reticent to want to impeach a president. And yet CEOs are removed all the time. Um, <laughs> if, uh, you know, if business owners think things aren't going well, or if they've, if they've committed some sort of uh, flagrant um, impropriety, um, lots of people are fired from positions if they've done something wrong, even tenured professors. Um, but for some reason, you know, the presidency, which, you know, we arguably the, the most powerful and important job in the country, um, we've just largely decided um, we don't do that. Um, the The Constitution sets the bar very high, and most of the time we don't even attempt to consider that. Um, that we just say, well, if they've done something really wrong, let's just let the voters sort it out. And uh, which in itself is, is kind of a remarkable concept, that there's no real, if we ignore impeachment, we've just basically said, uh, we're just going to assume voters got it right in the last election, and we're not even going to, um, consider holding someone accountable. Yeah, if, if I can, if I can use this opportunity to promote my own research, um, please. The, I mean, really, that's why you have academics on, right? Um, <laughs> so, I mean, so unfortunately, my book on presidential mandate claiming came out in 2014 because its most interesting case has been Donald Trump, mm. um, who's not in the book. But I do think, you know, one of the things I argue in the book is that we've been moving toward a, a situation in, in which elections have this increasingly outsized importance so like the, the only place where leg legitimacy can be won and so they've become incredibly contested not just as you know not just in the campaigns for actually winning but then the meaning of the election becomes deeply contested and becomes a matter of of public interest that goes on you know way longer the conversation about the election goes on much longer than um then the votes are you know then after the votes are counted so you know, I think that that's, that's sort of at the crux of some of this impeachment stuff is that, well, the vote, as Seth said, the voters just got it right last time. And so we shouldn't bother where, and the constitution is very vague. I don't, I wouldn't say it sets necessarily a high bar. It's a vague bar about what, what constitutes high crimes and misdemeanors. And I still remember, you know, endless debate about that 
1998 and 1999 that didn't really go anywhere. You know, attempting to define that is just not going to work. As I said before, someone needs to actually step forward and define impeachment based on some set of standards about what it means to faithfully execute the office, what it means to make sure the you know that the laws are faithfully executed. That someone needs to to link it to some other provision of of Article Two in a way that resonates with enough people that it becomes a kind of new constitutional understanding. And I don't just say that as something that's specific to the Trump situation, but something that's that's general to the idea of having some standard for who holds this office. That um, sorry, I was <laughs> I wasn't suggesting a high bar for impeachable behavior. I was just saying it's a it's a high bar for the uh, for the Senate to actually remove two thirds of the Senate. Right. That's true. Yeah. Fair. So in preparing for this, I, uh, did not, I, I made a conscious decision not to ask you, uh, what your thoughts were on the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors, because my sense was that it's an inherently vague term. Uh, and so that's not what I'm going to ask now, but what I do want to ask is, a, is about your sense of what, the importance is of the norms that President Trump has been violating or has been flouting. And this is admittedly a very open-ended question, so approach it however you, you wish. But when you, when you consider the norms uh, that you think he has both violated and it's consequential for our democracy that he has violated them, if any, what is the first one that comes to mind and why does it matter? Well, in my case, it would be not a norm, but a uh, democratic value. And I've written about the difference between these two things. And mm. this is important in this case, um, which is the, the things that he has done, I think, that have been broadly construed as racist. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where... I think, you know, in some ways that is a historical norm, or at least it's not completely out of the norm um, in American politics, but it's a, it's a deep violation of our democratic values. It's a deep violation of the values enshrined in the 14th Amendment, of the values that are, you know, problematically, but still enshrined in the Declaration of Independence. And so to me, that's sort of the, you know, if I were playing the attorney in this movie, that would be like, what I would, the, the script I would want to write. I mean, I guess for me, there were um, a, a couple of things toward the end of the, the 2016 presidential campaign um, that struck me as potentially dangerous in the long run. One was uh, him um, uh, threatening to uh, put Hillary Clinton in jail should he win. Um, and I mean, it, it doesn't look like he's following through on that, although he, he has repeatedly urged, uh, the FBI and, and others to, um, to investigate the Clintons. Um, and, you know, so just the, the sort of an attempt to really criminalize an election and, and just say that, you know, the, who goes to jail and who doesn't is, is determined by who's going to win this next thing. Um, and also his repeated claim that I will... Uh, uh, only accept the outcome of this election if I'm the winner. And, you know, we can, we can sort of dismiss those as, um, you know, just kind of excessive rhetoric and just throwing some red meat to his, his supporters. But if that sort of, of language and behavior is, is adopted by other candidates, that's, that's potentially very corrosive to, um, to a functional democracy. And, we have seen other countries go that route, and it, it doesn't necessarily lead to very good places. So, Julia, you recently ended a blog post with uh, the following quote, and I, I was reminded of it because of your reference to values uh, rather than norms. And, and just to quote you, 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 you write, uh, in the current political moment, using language that feels honest, that correctly identifies racism, sexism, and affronts to other democratic values, requires an upfront ideological and political commitment in a way that was not the case a decade ago. Fights over language with real stakes have always existed, of course, but the current president, Trump, 
has changed the landscape of political language, stymied the usual practices of reporting news and holding politicians accountable, and deepened the partisan wedge around these questions. This is a challenge to democracy that goes beyond institutions and cuts at the very meaning of a shared political community. The past is a guide, but we are entering uncharted territory. Can you explain what you meant? And in particular, I'm curious what you meant when you said, this is a challenge to democracy that goes beyond institutions and cuts the very meaning of a shared political community. Yeah, so in that post, I was, you know, I was responding to a book about, um, about political institutions and the decline of American democracy, which has been a really kind of popular topic. Um, and in the rest of the post, I'll just tell you the context for um, for this, which is that in the, you know throughout this this book, which is written by Jeff Balkin and Sandy Levinson, two law professors, they talk a little bit about the news media, and they have a kind of you know their their view evolves. At first, it's sort of the news media is at fault. The news media helped to elect Trump. I have also taken that view in a nomination context. Um, but then they say, you know, the press has really stepped up after Trump is elected. You know, the press is is taking on this more adversarial, um, you know, perspective on the administration. And so my point was kind of that, you know, we really need when we talk about the role of the news media here, we need to really think about um, we need to really think about language um, and the ways in which. So I had read this piece in the New Yorker by Masha Gessen, who is talking about some security issues and kind of said, she said, words no longer have meaning. Um, and what I, what I was thinking about there, she's talking about a member of the Trump administration in, um, in the, so a member of the state department talking about security issues that these phrases this person was using in this, in this meeting, you know, don't mean what people have generally regarded them to mean. And so the thing I was really thinking about is that, you have to, you know, you don't use your words to declare your meaning or to convey your meaning. You have to declare your meaning first. And so knowing what side someone is on tells you what they mean when they use a national security term or they use a term that has to do with the media, the role of the media in democracy or democratic institutions. You kind of have to know where, where someone is to know what, they're, what they mean when they use that word. And that's, I think, you know, that's really a challenge to... <laughs> to using, to words being a way of people coming together across differences. So this is, um, this is probably, I probably don't have the language. I'm not a trained linguist to, to talk about this, but it seems to me that when you read about certain kinds of political conflicts, actually the high crimes and misdemeanors example from the constitution is not a terrible example. It is possible to have a conversation about that, even though it's a very vague term. Right. It is possible to say, well, here are the things that I mean when I say high crime. Right. And then you can list out here are the things that a president might have done that would constitute a crime. And you can generally be sure that your the person you're talking to has some general sense of, of that you share about what a crime is. Right. It violates the law. It hurts someone. Um, you know what a high crime might be versus a smaller crime. Um, and then you can debate about where that line is, but you you both know essentially what you're debating about and what the core characteristics are of the of that political concept. And that I feel like is what has sort of slipped away. And that Trump's Trump's use of language, right? His his way of calling something and giving it a label that is not you know is not widely accepted or seems to be the opposite of um, of how most people understand it, that does real damage, right? And it drives a wedge um, between supporters of the president and opponents that they're not just disagreeing about their issue positions, but about the kind of fundamental meaning of both language and reality. So that's a little bit, that's a little bit fuzzy, I realize, but that's, that's kind of what I was trying to get at. So yesterday he tweeted about great patriot farmers, right? <laughs> and this is where, so people and kind of, you know, left-leaning comparative politics and journalism Twitter are all talking about how this sounds, you know, like Soviet propaganda. Um, you know, I'm not sure. I didn't look to see how people, um, how Trump supporters 
received that, but I'm assuming that, you know, they received it quite differently. And people use, people even use, you know, basic Trumpisms with, with a twist to mean different things, right? So people who are not supporters of the president have co-opted make America great again to, and often use some other, you know, some other phrase in there. Um, but it means something very different to, to Trump supporters. And that strikes me as, you know, there were some, some big language questions that, with the Bush administration and there were language questions with Obama. Um, but the just sort of polarization of the meaning of language is, is a new development. Well, I, I, I wonder if uh, either of you is optimistic that when we enter a post Trump era that we can recover uh, some of that, shared understanding of language necessary for shared political community? I think, I think there are optimistic possibilities if people are willing to do the work. If people are willing to, to deal with what the underlying sentiment is here and that we have to somehow develop a polity, which includes a set of language, but also institutions that, that can incorporate, I think, a much broader range of views than people thought was real and a much broader range of the kinds of people that can attain power, then, you know, then we can, then we can move through it. I think the only way out of this thing is through. Um, and I think that's, you know, that is likely to be pretty painful, but I actually don't think it's impossible. I, I think in some ways, a lot of this depends on how, how, how Donald Trump ultimately leaves office and how he's remembered. Um, so, you know, if he's if he's impeached and removed, if he loses reelection um, or if he if he resigns in, in, in disgrace, I mean, I, I could imagine there would be an attempt to by Republicans to say that doesn't represent who we are. Um, that was an aberration. We're trying to move past that. And, and I think our, you know, post Trump, our, our political system will still be plenty polarized. And partisans will still have, um, you know, different ways of approaching language and different ways of, of, of um, interpreting the, the same set of facts in the world. But, um, you know, to the extent to which Trump has really kind of ramped up these these differences, um, if he is sort of broadly seen as a as the sort of thing that um, that parties should be avoiding then I, I, you know, I, I think there could be some level of, of manageability and, and sanity to the system. On the other hand, if he has, uh, you know, two full terms in office and uh, Republicans can continue to to rally around him going forward and then, uh, you know, look back on him fondly as, as the guy who could unite the party. Um, I, I, I think this just uh, this probably continues and even accelerates going forward. specific to what I saw happen yesterday, which was that even though both Presidents Obama and uh, George W. Bush had shunned Viktor Orban uh, of Hungary, so leader of Hungary viewed as anti-immigration, as consolidating power, as a kind of so-called strongman, Including uh, wielding power over the ju- of, over the judiciary and the press, Orban quoted at one point again through a translator. So I assume the translation is accurate, but quoted as saying, "It is my personal conviction that it is part of a country's sovereignty that the majority of a media system working in a country must be in national hands." Uh, something that I would think would send, I would hope, would send chills down our spines if a U.S. president ever said that. But our U.S. president uh, hosted Orban in the Oval Office yesterday. I wonder if uh, you have a sense as political scientists of what the consequences are for legitimacy of a president doing that. I can imagine on the one hand, it bolsters the legitimacy of Orban, at least within his country. Uh, but on the other hand, I can imagine that it undermines the legitimacy of the U.S. president. Most of what I know about this, I know from um, listening to a Radio Atlantic piece about um about hungry um so you know so and and one of the points that they actually did raise on that piece was how important it was for to orban to get um to sit with 
with President Trump and that he had wanted this meeting with Trump. Um, I think that the, yeah, I mean, I think certainly like global legitimacy is a, is a, is a concern. I think this probably is not on most Americans' radar. I think my, I other thought about this is that it's important to be, and to be careful about this, um, and precise in the sense that it, it's not great, right? That's to the, to the degree that there's, that there's any kind of ideological, um, you know, uh, connection there. That's really not what we want. On the other hand, we're, as we're talking about norms, um, it's not like American presidents and the American government hasn't made a lot of connections of, of convenience um, with unsavory people over the years. Those usually had a more clear strategic objective. Um, but, you know, I think that I think it's important not to not to lose sight of that. You know, we we've seen an ability by um, the president's own partisan supporters to more or less adopt a lot of uh, that president's language and, and policy views. Um, you know, we've seen just in the last couple of years, um, Vladimir Putin's popularity rise pretty substantially among uh, Republican voters. And, you know, my my concern here is that, you know, um, Orban is, is not the only one in this category. Um, uh, Trump has, has made a point of, you know, befriending a lot of authoritarians around the world, um, including Duterte and, and others. And if it increasingly becomes the case that um, he and his administration and, and Republican voters are uh, pretty comfortable with people who are very hostile to democracy around the world. And that the only ones who are saying that, you know, democracy around the world is important uh, within the U.S. are just from one party or just from the Democratic side. I, I, I think that in, in the long run is 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 bad. And I think Julia is right that it's, it's not, you know, both parties uh, in the U.S. have, um, have have hardly been. Uh, you know, very consistent on this over the years. But uh, if, if this becomes sort of a, a partisan argument where one party is okay with authoritarianism and, authoritarianism and the other isn't, I, I think that has bad long-term consequences. That's it for Tatter. I want to thank Julia Zari and Seth Maskett for taking the time to talk with me. For more information on them and the topics we discussed, go to tatter.fireside.fm and find the page for this episode where there will be relevant links. To provide feedback on this or any other episode of Tatter, you can go to Twitter, if you use Twitter, and mention Tatter using the handle at tatter underscore rags, or via iTunes, you can post a review. Either way, your feedback is very much appreciated. In any case, thanks for listening, and be well. <laughs>